It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, sponsored by Unibet Poker, the podcast that has been drinking vodka with grapefruit juice and stuffing its gob with marshmallows all week. I'm David Lappin, I'm here with Dara O'Carney, and this week we are joined by one of the game's all-time crushers, former GPI number one Bryn Kenny. We also welcome the irrepressible and inspiring Aliyah Jadavji. Dan Wilson takes us through a bizarre but fascinating hand from his WSOP main event deep run last year. Ian Simpson is back at the news desk, but first... Tipping. Well, last year, Daniel Negreanu posed a theoretical question. You play a 300k tourney and you have 97% of the action. You cash for 3 million. The dealers were world-class in the event. There was no rake or money taken out for dealers. How much should you leave as a tip? Now, we might be a bit late to the party on this one, Dara, but cut to just last week and Sam Grafton tweeted a photo of Ramon Colilas with the caption, you have just won 5.1 million in a poker tournament. You won a free 30k package. How much should you tip? A, 50k, B, 10k, C, $0, or D, 100k. Now, Sam hasn't got a particularly positive response to this tweet. He's come under some fire. Of course, he was referring to the PSPC and stars do take out 2% from the prize pool to pay dealers. It does, however, bring up the subject of tipping once again. So, Dara, do you tip? How much do you tip? These are the questions that people ask themselves. Certainly in a restaurant, there's a tipping culture in America that far outweighs the tipping culture maybe we have in Europe. And I suppose that extends to poker. Dealers work very hard, particularly world-class dealers. They're not paid a huge amount of money and they do rely to some degree on their tips. Now, I know you are a phenomenal tipper, a better tipper than me. We've had rows about this one in the past, so I thought I would ask you the question. Yeah, I think the first point is it does vary from country to country. Some countries have a tipping culture in general. You know, you tip pretty much everybody. Other countries absolutely don't have it. And you can actually insult people by offering them a tip in some countries. You know, it's almost like going up to somebody on the street who's well-dressed and giving them money. It's seen as quite offensive. Because the poker world is a coherent world, there is a sort of a unique culture within poker where tipping is expected, even in countries where tipping is not part of the culture. To answer the question about how much... In the early days when I started playing in Ireland, it's true that dealers were not particularly well paid and they relied very heavily on tips. So the number that I always set in my mind was 5% seemed in or around the right number on major caches. On minor caches where you know you as a player haven't made very much money, then I didn't feel the same compunction to cash. And in fact, some of my more tilting experiences are having just busted after a min cash where maybe I got my money back or maybe even less than my money back since the arrival of re-entries and then being immediately asked for a tip. That sometimes seems a bit like taking the piss. I think the other thing that's changed in recent years too is that because there used to be such a divergence among what people tipped, you know, some people tip 5%, some people tip 3%, some people didn't tip at all, that organizers started to just take a certain amount out of the pool as a standard tip. Uh, I think 3 or 4% was sort of settled on as a standard. Given that that's the case now in most tournaments, money is actually taken out for the dealers, then I think that kind of does remove the requirement to tip. Yeah, and whether he got in for free or not, that is the situation that applies to Ramon Colilas at the PSPC, to which Sam is referring. 
And I have to say, I do like that there's a standard amount. It takes the pressure off and it does equalise things. You don't have a final table where the dealer's really rooting for you to win because you're Mr. 5% and they, they don't want me to win because I'm Mr. 2%. And they certainly don't want that guy <laughs> in C3 to win because maybe he doesn't tip at all. And really, the outcome of those cards matters a whole lot for those guys and how much they would take home on that evening. I was a 2% tipper always, I have to say, across the board. So 3% meant that I was tipping a little bit more than I used to, but I certainly don't begrudge it. 2% always was the number I settled on, although maybe in my early days of playing poker, wasn't meeting the same people over and over again. I know you have a very good relationship with all the Irish dealers. I've grown to have that as well, I hope, for the most part, a few exceptions. But I would say that across the board now these days, I would feel more generous in that situation because they're a familiar face. It's a bit like tipping the waiter in the restaurant that you're a regular in, as opposed to tipping the waiter in the restaurant that you almost never go into and probably will never go back to again. But it was 2% on some big caches on one or two occasions, and I still stuck to you my guns. You caches? Yeah, there was a few <laughs> in the early days, one or two, where I still took my guns on the 2% and, and actually I chopped a decent sized tournament a good few years ago and I tipped 2% and the guy who chopped it with me tipped 0 so there you go you have that already that variance yeah, yeah. for the guy also he was Spanish just like Mr. Colila so maybe there is a cultural thing there yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, while tipping is obviously a generous thing to do, I think the very existence of tipping and a tipping culture, it is problematic in itself in that dealers are human beings. If somebody's known as a very generous tipper, they will root for that player. I remember playing a tournament in Ireland once and, you know, dealers were always exceptionally friendly to me because I guess I was known as a fairly generous tipper. And it was pretty clear they were rooting for me to do well in tournaments. I remember talking about a friend of mine who was playing in the tournament was also going well and the dealer actually spat on the floor when I said this other person's name and I was surprised because you know my friend was a very nice guy and she said yeah but he never tips so it creates this weird dynamic that's not to say that it's actually going to affect anything but you know when you have a dealer rooting for some players and rooting against other players that does create the potential for the whole fair play thing to become a little bit corrupted. Yeah, integrity could be questioned, I guess, if you push that to its conclusion. I do remember you telling me a story years ago, and I'm going to paraphrase it because it's not my story. It's a, a sort of Chinese whisper. But I remember you telling me that there was a player who was not known for a particularly good tip and also not known for a particularly good behaviour at the table. So pretty much the definition of a dealer's nightmare. And he used to root for cards and he used to shout at the dealer rooting for his cards. He'd be like, six, six, six. And I remember you telling me the story where the dealer turned to him and she said and I won't say the guy's name but she said to him I can't control the outcome of this card but if I could it would not be a six <laughs> yeah, that's right yeah yeah that happened in an Irish Open I believe and I had to laugh and funnily the player in question was rooting for a six and the card that came out was a nine which briefly looked like a six so it was almost like the dealer had found the nut card <laughs> to antagonize him further um, another problematic thing about the whole thing of tipping is because it's essentially you know black economy we are relying on the tips being passed on to the dealers by the organisers and I don't think that's necessarily always the case I do remember joining in Ireland years ago where I left my, my standard 5% tip which I think worked out at something like 400 euros and then a dealer asked me afterwards how much did you tip and I said 400 euros and they said yeah I thought that because that's the amount you would normally tip the odd thing is the organisers told us that the total tips for everybody in the field was 400 euros which clearly wasn't the case because I know that other players tipped as well so clearly the organisers in that case pocketed some of the money I also remember a situation at EPT Berlin where I cashed and I left a reasonably generous tip because most of the dealers were Eastern European dealers and English dealers that I was personally very friendly with I went off and played another side event at Turbo got to the final table of that and one of the English dealers who knew me looked across 
across me and said, oh, you cashed a main event, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, did you leave a tip? And I said, yeah, of course I did. And he said, uh, well, don't leave a tip from this one because we won't get a cent out of that. Uh, it goes to the casino. Right. So maybe with some of these traveling tour operators, they bring in their own dealers, uh, but the casino just pocketed themselves. Or maybe the casino staff just think we're having that. I think it was more a case of the casino staff, yeah. Well, I want to push back on one thing you said a little earlier on. You, you said that as it goes up the amount, so let's say you win 100k as opposed to 5k as your cash, you're more inclined for the tip to be bigger. You're, you're feeling rich. You've just won 100k. It's very nice. Let's give the dealers 5k to share. That's a, an amazing tip. I have to say my psychology would be to decrease the amount. If suddenly like I won a million dollars, I'd be thinking... I'm really going to leave 20 grand. I'd be like, well, maybe I just leave 10 grand because 10 grand's a lot and, you know, it's a bigger buy-in and, okay, yes, the dealers are doing their job, but aren't they doing their job just as well as they would have been if the buy-in was one-tenth of the amount? It's a bit like wine on a restaurant bill. I always thought, well, there's something a bit weird. If you buy a $100 bottle of wine and you buy a $20 bottle of wine in the restaurant, are you going to tip on the wine amount? Obviously, the waiter's yeah. done the same work. Yeah, I guess I see your point. I still do think of it as a percentage because I feel like, you know, the rake is a percentage, everything involved is a percentage, but you're probably right. I guess one other aspect from our perspective on tipping is that tipping could be seen as a tax both on generous players, the players who will leave a tip, but also on winning players because winning players are going to cash more often and therefore are going to end up paying out a proportionally higher amount of tips than losing players. As a professional, I guess it does detract quite a bit from your bottom line. You know, if cash were just over a million on the hand of mob. But if you assume I'm generally tipping 5%, you know, that's actually not a million, it's only 950K. I think another thing which has changed too is because it's far less common for players who have 100% of themselves anymore. In the old days when I had 100% of myself in every tournament, it was completely my decision how much to tip. Now, you know, if I cash a tournament and I've got 50% of myself and Lappin has 5% and I go and tell Lappin, oh, by the way, I tip 5%, I'm going to get the grumpy face. You've done this before. <laughs> You're saying this like it's a hypothetical. I have for years... <laughs> felt the need to go up to dealers and go, you know, I only tip 2% and you might put me in the sort of slightly more miserable category. I just want you to know, every time O'Carney cashes, there's a little fragment of that 5% generous tip is mine because I got a little bit less payout on our swap. But anyway, I do want to finish this segment, which is, a, you know, a nice segment, uh, maybe a, a softer, gentler segment to some of the topical segments that we're used to doing. But I do want to finish by giving a shout out to our great friend, Mick McCluskey, who at a recent Unibet Open in Dublin, not only did he tip as he always does at those events but he did actually stick around for our staff game which involved a lot of the dealers and he offered to be the dealer for them in their game which was a really nice touch first and foremost but what was even nicer than that was any time a dealer won a pot he would push the pot to them which was in tournament chips but he would also flick in two five dollar chips as well as a sort of a, an extra sweetener something he felt well I guess with all the money he's made in the last year in Irish poker he should probably do but uh, fair play to him on that and that was a, a really nice touch I thought so Something that maybe would be equivalent to, you know, taking a dealer for dinner or buying the first round when you see dealers at the bar, which I think, you know, we are a community and they do an unbelievably difficult job very well under a lot of pressure, often traveling a long way, often long hours. And I think, you know, whenever you get the opportunity to reward somebody, particularly a really good dealer, you should. Yeah, I agree. And shout out to Mick McCloskey. We do give him a lot of stick about not buying people drink and stuff. Mick is actually a very generous man and has always uh, treated dealers really well and agitated for other players to do likewise. Absolutely. Well, on that note, don't forget to tip your dealer. 
We're joined now by a poker player and reporter from Toronto, Canada. Over the years, she has worked for the WSOP, the WPT and Poker News. In the last year, she has been involved in a number of charity drives and she recently played the PSPC after winning a platinum pass for her contribution to poker media. She is Aliyah Jadavji. Aliyah, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm really happy to be on here. Probably my first podcast, actually. Cool. Great stuff. Ali, before we chat about your experience in the Bahamas and maybe one other hot topic, I want to go back to your beginnings in poker. You learned the game at age 16 and began playing in underground clubs in Toronto. What was that like? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm 32 now, so half my life I've been playing poker. But really it started when I was 16 and, you know, living in Toronto, I didn't have, obviously, the luxury of being old enough to go gamble in the casino first of all but you know just friends through university we started playing five dollar ten dollar sit and goes and then you know the underground clubs started popping up and i really wanted to go and majority of my friends were male so it was a little bit daunting being the only female in those clubs you know they kind of got a little bit scary so i kind of stopped (laughs) (laughs) as david mentioned you worked as a reporter for several outlets one i think he, he left out his run it up we spoke to arlie shaban a couple of weeks ago and he painted an extraordinarily positive picture of that company. What have your experiences with them been like? Honestly, I'm actually wearing Run It Up gear right now. I wasn't sure if there was going to be video or not, but I'm a massive fan of Run It Up, a massive fan of Jason Somerville. And I tell people this all the time. Whenever I go to the Run It Up events, which is twice a year, it's the only event that it pains me to not play. The atmosphere is so different. And there's a lot of new players that are there as well. There's a lot of mixed games. And, you know, a lot of the buy-ins are small to medium buy-ins. So people are a little bit less stressed when they're busting tournaments of that nature. And I just think the overall atmosphere is so much fun especially with the twitch aspect too you know you have so many big personalities like arlie shaban kevin martin jamie staples engaging with their fans and joking around trolling each other so i highly recommend you guys come check it out one day it's honestly something else well, that sounds like really good fun. Several seasons back, we had one of your WSOP colleagues, Will Schillaber, on the show. Will has talked about the fly-on-the-wall role of the reporter, but has expressed to me how there have been occasions where he felt the need to speak because he saw something maybe not noticed by players or dealer. What's your take on this? Should a reporter be read but not heard? So yeah, it's a touchy subject in our industry. I share some similar sentiments that Will does. It's really tough. As someone who plays a lot too, you know, like when I play at the tables and I see something that might have been done incorrectly, I immediately, my first instinct is to speak up because like, you know, it's about integrity in the game. It's about game flow and and also helping like new players feel comfortable at the tables so i can totally see where will's coming from on the professional side though i agree with the people uh, that run the show and they've set the rules for us i think that as reporters we're there to record the action and that is our job like this is what they're paying us to do but the managers say to us they're like look if you see something tell us and we will relay it to the floor people and they will help coach them it's one of those things where you know i've seen just so many problems with some media getting involved. It just looks badly on us, I think, to to say anything because, you know, this is our job. This is what we're paid to do. And as much as I feel like we're very qualified to say something, it's just the way it goes. Well, we don't want to put you on the spot or, or get you into trouble with anybody as there are so many yeah. excellent reporters out there. But we were wondering who your dream team would be when covering an event. Who are your favorite people to work with? Haha. <laughs> 
Uh, I think that all the media works so, so hard. And, uh, you know, obviously I take it personally when people during the WSOP start bashing our teammates saying, oh, like you can't even get the suit right. It's really tough when you see so many hands all summer and, you know, we're going to make mistakes. So it's every part of the media is close to me. But my dream team, honestly, would be number one, Steve Schultz. He's so hilarious and really, really good at his job. And it's tough because he's now moved on to a role with card players. So he's actually not even reporting anymore. Uh, Sandra Barber, she's an up and coming reporter and she's one of the hardest working people I've ever met. So she'd be also another person. Um, Jess Wellman, who's not a reporter anymore, but she really coached me quite a bit and helped me become the writer that I am today. I'd say like if there was like a team of four, those would be my picks. Definitely. They seem like really solid picks. Yes. You've been doing a lot of charity work in the last year, most notably raising 25 grand in December, which was matched by Dan Smith's Double Up Dry Fair Play. Dan, can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So when I was younger, I did lots of charity work. I was fairly religious as part of the Muslim community, but uh, kind of like veered away from that quite a bit as I grew into, you know, school and stuff and making friends. And I kind of just not really that religious anymore, but my family is. So, you know, a lot of that came with charity work. And I was thinking about it over the years. I stopped doing that and I didn't know why. I couldn't really explain why life gets in the way. And so when I joined the poker community as part of the industry and working in it, honestly, it was such a a huge shift from what I used to do when I worked in finance and it was like a switch everything just started falling in place it felt amazing like I felt like I was really happy in my role I was really happy with friends with family and everything just felt perfect and I just thought I really want to give back and get back to things that make me happy and one of those things is charity work so I thought how can I leverage my position in poker you know all the people that I've met and the game of poker and just raise some money and try to do some good. So I kind of came up with this idea of just doing a Twitch stream. And initially, my colleague Adam Lammers and I were both based in Canada. We decided to go over the Christmas holiday and just do a Twitch stream. There was no real planning in it. I just kind of started messaging a lot of the familiar faces that I know, Danielle Anderson, Jamie Kerstetter, Jason Somerville, Kristen Vicknell, Jennifer Shahadi. I just started compiling a list of people that I, you know, obviously really respect and really wanted to be a part of this and I know that charity is important to them. I just got all these people together and I just said, YOLO, I'm going to message them all. If they say no, I understand it's Christmas. If not, we're just going to roll with what we have. I didn't have a set goal, but I would have been really happy with 5K and we ended up 5Xing that. So yeah, it's such an amazing thing and I'm really proud of that and I would hope to do more of it. Yeah, that was incredible stuff. You also decided to do your own version of the ultimate sweat as Jamie Staples Mm -hmm. undertook, I don't know, maybe 18 months or nearly two years ago now. Can you tell us about your version? Absolutely. So he started, I believe it was spring of 2017. And I was pretty inspired by it. I've actually known Jamie Staples from before he hit the Twitch streets and he was a local grinder where I live. So to see him undertake this and just be someone of influence in a community beyond ours and just to see him have the heart that he has really inspired me. And, you know, for me, I struggled with losing weight for several years and I just decided I was going to do it along with him. So I did it and I lost about 50 pounds in like two months that it kind of just like stopped. And, you know, several months went by, I might've gained back a little bit, but then Christmas rolled around where we started this Twitch stream. And I was like, I don't know why I stopped. It just makes no sense. And, you know, they were ramping up for his weigh in in March. So I just hopped right back on the wagon and I said, I'm just going to continue. Like, so what if I 
fell off for like, you know, six months or whatever, I still kept a bunch of weight off and it's something that's not going to happen overnight. So I did it again. I ended up losing a collective amount of hundred pounds and, you know, had a really great summer. I played more than I've played um, in any summer. I took the summer off from reporting and I just like had the time of my life. And unfortunately that's where it kind of started getting pain in my abdomen and Mm -hmm. throughout the summer I found out that there was a very large tumor in my abdomen that was growing and that was the reason for my pain as the summer progressed so that was kind of where I was at and you know unfortunately you can't do it all you can't you know fight all the battles at once so um, I was focused on just trying to fight it and as of yesterday, actually, officially back on the wagon, hoping to just pick up where I left off last year and lose the rest of the weight that I want to lose and just continue on with having an amazing year. Yeah, you, you mentioned there your tumor, and I know you had surgery in December. How did the surgery go and how are you feeling now? Yeah, so the surgery went pretty well. I was really worried because I haven't really had many major surgeries in my life and I've never broken a bone. So this was like the biggest thing for me. So on the 19th, it was removed. It went from about 10 pounds down to five, you know, through radiation treatments and whatnot. So they were pretty happy with that. But the amazing thing was that my doctor, when I was diagnosed in September, asked me about like, you know, lifestyle and diet. And she was actually pretty convinced that, you know, because they say that cancer cells thrive off of glucose and that comes from carbs. And I was on the keto diet. So I basically was depriving myself of carbs for like a year. So she was very certain that really helped save my life. Mm -hmm. And so that was a really like defining moment Mm -hmm. for me because I just thought like, holy shit, what a time to pick to do this particular challenge and do it in the way that I did it. So going back to my surgery, I kind of went in and I was just like, you know what? I'm going to tell everybody that I love that I love them and I'm going to go in and hopefully come out the other side so much better and I can just walk away from this knowing that I fought and that, you know, I've done my best to be the person that I am and to make my family proud. So I was like, whatever happens, I was so scared about going into surgery, but I came out and I was a little bit groggy. Um, You could probably see my tweets from the 19th and the 20th. I was on some really powerful drugs <laughs> than I normally am. Well, that's extraordinary, perhaps even life-saving serendipity there with the keto diet. I have to yeah. say, I have really enjoyed your Twitter feed recently. Maybe <laughs> groggy on drugs or otherwise. You tweeted this week, I get one tumor removed and all of a sudden I feel like I can take on all the douchebags. Hold <laughs> me back. Do you feel like this scare has put things in focus for you? Maybe sharpened your attention for what's important? Yeah, it's so crazy because I was talking to a colleague of mine last night and he's like, I really like the old Aaliyah. And I'm like, are you trying to say that you don't like the new one? (laughs) I was like, you were treading in some like hilarious territory here. But, you know, he just said, he's like, I got to get used to the person that's like speaking out about things that he didn't expect. And I was feeling the same way because I used to be someone who you know, was super passive and just cares about what everybody thinks. And I'm sure we're going to go into this topic later. But admittedly, when people need standing up for, I probably should have stood up more for people that needed it when I was around, uh, especially in poker, I think. And so I wish I that had been a revelation that I had before. But it's something that I think I'm proud of now where I feel like I have a bit of a voice and I would like to use it for some good. And you know, whether that's through charity work uh, or speaking up for people that need it um, or, you know, especially women in poker, I think that it's super important. So I'm hoping that I can use my voice for some good. I know I have a big one and I can have some opinions that people might not like, but 
I think that it helps me as a person too, because I was definitely easily manipulated before and people walked all over me, I think, through certain parts of my life. That's very good to hear. I mentioned you were awarded a platinum pass. What was your experience in the Bahamas like? Oh man, it was so surreal. Maria Ho said it best. She's like, wow, you're getting the whole experience. And what she meant by that was I kind of came in, they did an interview with me uh, via Poker News, which was a first for me. I played with probably, I feel like it was the toughest table in the room. Reiner Kempi on my left, and then I had a Spanish pro on his left. I had Amit Makija, Davidi Katai. I had, yeah, I know. So when you sit down and you're the spot at the table, it's absolutely frightening, especially being a woman, you know? So I sit down and I'm like, oh God, my first thought is, oh God, like, what did I get myself into? Why didn't I reg yesterday? And then I actually ended up at that table pulling off the biggest bluff of my life, which just doesn't happen in my game because I am in a game back home here in Canada that does not require any skill. I've kind of been spoiled that way, but I got myself a coach and ended up pulling off this massive bluff that I'm super proud of that I will not stop talking about. And um, <laughs> and it's just one of those things where I feel like I see the game differently now. So, um, you know, I played at that table and then I got moved to the feature secondary feature table. So my first time playing in a game with whole cards, which... You know, they didn't get shown very often, but it was so much fun playing with Maria Ho, Sean Deeb, and Natasha Mercier. And the most defining moment, honestly, was Maria. She busted the 25K on day one with like 10 minutes to go. And she packs up her stuff and she comes up to me and just whispers to me, your table presence is amazing. You're playing really well. Good luck. Keep crushing. And like to hear that from somebody who just busted a 25K was just really staggering to me. Well, that sounds like a wonderful experience. Unfortunately, I come now to a less than wonderful experience you've been through recently. I don't know how to describe it, really. So if it's okay, I'll read out your response to what happened. You said on Facebook, I've quit as an ambassador in the Poker League of Nations women's group because one of their founders felt the need to make me look skinnier, chopped off my hair and airbrushed my skin. I tried to explain why this affects women's self-esteem and why it defeats the purpose of a group that advocates for women. This is just pretty atrocious stuff. And I am interested to know more of what happened there and and maybe the people involved. Sure. So honestly, like when it first happened, it was just before I was actually going in for surgery. So it was like a few days before and I saw the photo. And honestly, my first reaction was I laughed. First of all, I don't care too much about these things. Like I can be like looking awful in the background of a photo when I'm live reporting and it just doesn't bother me. So I saw this photo and my initial reaction was, I look like an Oompa Loompa right now. What is happening? And I just laugh. But this was posted in a group with 3,400 people in it. And, you know, I've been battling some more important things. So fast forward to the last week where there's like been a lot of drama with the Poker League of Nations site. People are dropping out. People are upset. And so I ended up just reading a little bit and they made a post. If you have any topics of, for discussion that you want the ambassadors to go over on our January 27th call, please let us know. So I just commented. I was like, oh, it would be nice to not have my face edited because I don't feel like it's necessary. It's a waste of time. And this doesn't send a good message to the women in the group and so I just posted that and I didn't bash anyone because I said it very nonchalant and so Lena Evans who's one of the founders immediately commented and started to get really defensive she's like well we've been asking you for a photo for seven months I'm like because I don't really care like I have so many photos on my profile and you can just pull any of them I haven't had time for a photo shoot is essentially what I said and so long story short we went back and forth and she got really upset with me for saying anything about it. Her attitude was that, well, I do it to all the photos and nobody says anything. And so 
the result of my post was that a bunch of women started adding me to social media and they sent me private messages and I can count 12 where they said, we are scared to say anything to her, but this has been done to me. And one of them said she was crying. And so that really upset me because as much as I don't care, um, other women clearly do. So I felt like it was really important to continue and try to get it across to a group. You know, they claim to be the largest women's group. And I said, like, look, imagine if I was a 12 or 13 year old girl and I brought this photo home to my mom and I said, mom, look, they edited my face. What was wrong with what I looked like before? And so it kind of turned into this huge thing. It sounds to me like there's a culture of bullying coming from the top in this group. And obviously it's fantastic that you are standing up to the bully in this situation. Maybe, as you say, something that you're more inspired to do these days, given what you've gone through. Yeah. I imagine the communication maybe isn't there with Miss Evans anymore. But what would you say to her if you could send her a message? The first thing is that she apologized and, you know, that was something I appreciated. However, the apology was, I'm sorry I hurt you. And here's the problem with that is that, of course, I will always accept anyone's apology. I'm not an unforgiving person. However, the problem is that you are the leader of a women's group that we're supposed to, like, support each other and lift each other up. And you're making it seem like their faces should be edited and they're not good enough to be part of this group and that you have to change the way we look. And women deal with body image issues and self-esteem issues every day and you know what men do too but it's a bit more prominent and women kind of speak more about it and are more vocal about it you know with the media and airbrushing and all that stuff if lena wants to do that to her photos totally fine that is her prerogative but to do it without asking us permission is completely off the walls and you know touching on the bullying and stuff there's a bunch of things wrong with in my opinion, the way that this group is operating. I want to talk about the pros, though, is that she's bringing so many women into the game. They're playing open events. You know, they're putting 50 players into the main event coming this year in WSOP. That's amazing. They're doing some really great things, which is why I think it's so disappointing. So she's censoring women from having an opinion. She's deleting comments. She's turning off comments on threads. She's now posting with the apology saying that she does not want her women wearing low-cut tops, she doesn't want them wearing ripped clothing and she doesn't want them wearing short shorts. She's editing photos and she's deleting members from the group because of either dress code issues or because she has personal issues with them because she's feuding with other women's groups, which I think is honestly so catty. And the reason why so many women have said to me, this is why I don't join women's groups. But if I could say something to her, I would say, listen to my point of view and the point of view of women that are too scared to speak up. All we want is to be accepted how we are. We want to play poker. We want to look the way we look. We want to have fun. We want to be comfortable at the table. And we don't want to be judged by other women or men. Very good. Uh, we spoke to Chrissy Bicknell last week about her complicated relationship with ladies' events, female-only spaces, and the need people put on her to promote women specifically in poker. From your perspective, what do you think the focus should be for women's groups in poker? Actually, Chrissy and I are friends, but on top of that, I'm very much a fan of her and I look up to her very much. And, and you know, we discussed this actually because I was at the Poker Awards last year when she received her GPI Female Player of the Year Award. And I said to her, I'm like, not to make you nervous, but people are going to be listening to what you have to say because of the response that Kate Hall had the year before. And she's like, oh, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm like, don't be. Just speak from your heart and what you feel. And I agree with what she says when she says, look, it's good to want to feel like you're 
the best poker player at the table versus the best female. And I agree with her that, you know, we want to feel like we are part of something bigger than just being ranked among women. On the same token, we make up three to five percent of the population in poker. And so I feel it is definitely beneficial to be highlighting women's success. And, you know, a really good example, actually, is Rachel Hennigan, who's the VIP manager of Party Poker. She retweeted my tweet about the whole fiasco with Poker League of Nations. But then she also tagged Diva and said, we need to be more inclusive and less judgmental like the way Diva runs her group, which is so telling because you have competing sites and tours that are backing each other and just saying, look, this is bigger than all of us and we want to get more women playing poker. Well, before we go, I wanted to quote you one last time, if that's okay. Something you said in the last few days stuck with me, some great advice that I think everyone needs to hear. Don't let any individual or group dictate how you look in order to be included in something. Be yourself, love yourself and remind yourself that you are enough. Aliyah Jadavji, thank you so much. It's been really lovely chatting to you. Dara and I will be out at the World Series, so hopefully we'll see you there. Definitely grab some drinks or something yeah, like that and catch yeah, up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it'll be great. I, I don't know, do you remember the first time we met, Darren? I do, yeah, yeah. You were covering me in the event. I, I remember <laughs> it. It was funny, though, because you tweeted something about, like, oh, nobody recognizes me. <laughs> that's right, and then, yeah. You know, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so I saw it and I was like, oh, shit, that's you? <laughs> Like, I knew who you were. It was funny because as I was going deep in that event, I was getting loads of messages from people saying, why are you not even being mentioned in poker news? What's going on? In your defense, Aaliyah, Dara usually goes incognito in Vegas wearing all sorts of crazy tourist costumes that he'd never be seen in in Europe. So That's amazing. I won't forget you this time. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. Aaliyah, so nice to chat to you. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. Thanks, Ali. He's back. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello there and welcome to the news. We open with some sad news this week, I'm afraid. The passing of Gavin Smith has shocked the poker world last week. Tribute to poured in for a man who seemed to be the best friend of everyone he met. And stories of his hijinks have been shared all across social media. Yeah, they certainly have, Eni. A gregarious, jovial, kind man who certainly had his own demons but seemed to mask his own suffering by trying to make others laugh all the time. So many funny stories. Everyone seems to have a Gavin Smith story and no doubt the poker world is an awful lot poorer without him. Absolutely. Moving on to Cheerio news. Congratulations to Martin Zamani for defeating serial crusher Dominic Nietzsche heads up in the 25k high roller at the PCA. Zamai took down just shy of $900,000 for the win, while Nitsch took down 600 k for a second place result. If that high roller wasn't enough, there was a 100k high roller. In fact, there were a lot of high rollers at the PCA. This 100k high roller was won by none other than Sam Greenwood. He bagged $1.77 million for his win, as his loving parents and brothers all watched on. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, as you say, so many high rollers out there. Were you tempted yourself to try to satellite into one? Temptation's always there, but I was a little bit more sensible with my bankroll management. Good, good. I'm glad you didn't utterly do your bollocks while you are out there. We are all very worried about you. <laughs> I'm also glad, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the PCA, we have to tip our hats to Chino Ream. He was the main event winner. Chino actually eliminated all five of his opponents on the final day. That got him the $1.5 million top prize and, of course, the PCA trophy. Yeah, it was a wrecking ball performance on that final table, it's got to be said. And I'm sure he had no shortage of friends happy to walk up to the cage with him as he collected his money. <laughs> what are you saying? I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on, the Aussie Millions is underway and our strategy expert Dora Okani is out there in Melbourne looking to bag as many Aussie dollars as he can. 
Yeah, Dara went to this festival last year, said it was his favourite place to play poker ever. Sorry that he didn't go earlier in his career, but he wants to make up for lost time now. I mean, I was tempted myself to get out there this year, but the PCA took my fancy this time. I mean, I've never seen Australia, so it'd be a lovely place to see, and I've heard the poker's good out there. Yeah, I feel the exact same way, and also any friends of mine who moved to Melbourne at different stages of their lives didn't come home, so that's a good sign. That is a good sign, yeah. Well, either they're sick of you or they love Melbourne, so... (laughs) (laughs) Some people will go as far away as possible without leaving the planet, that's true. We are counting down to Univet Open Sanaya, a festival that is billed as a poker and skiing extravaganza. Sanaya is a ski resort about 70 kilometres away from the Romanian capital of Bucharest. It's a six-day festival, one extra day to accommodate a later start time each day so that players can hit the ski slopes. Aside from the usual 1k main, 2k high roller, 300 euro deep stack open cup, esports sit and go and tag team event, there will be a Unibet battle of the champions featuring the winner of various leaderboards online and live throughout 2018. Do you know any of the players who will be partaking in that tournament, Lapin? I'm not sure. Are you playing it, Ian? Uh, fortunately not. Bastard oh. leaderboards. Bastard. I think Fred Bergman may be joining us, which would be wonderful. It'd be great to see him at the event and battle with him at that event. Oh, of course, sorry, that's because I'm playing. <laughs> I, I, I did manage to win one of the online leaderboards during the year and then also found out the wonderful news that I won the live leaderboard for 2018. Isn't that wonderful for me, Ian? Wonderful for you, Lappin. Wonderful. I did ask you, but I mentioned that I had won two leaderboards. They said I wasn't allowed to have two seats in the event I understand that I asked would I get a crown or a throne and they said there was no crown but I could use you as a throne I've heard that and you know you've wanted to sit on me for quite a while now dude I mean I'm okay with the homoerotic connotations of that if I'm honest I've always been a little bit curious we don't mind experimenting if we get to simultaneously dress you up in some leather and sit on you for I don't know I suppose I'll probably go deep in the event won't be the only thing you're going deep in apparently so uh... (laughs) Well, on that note, Ian Simpson, it's great to have you back at the news desk. We missed you. Hopefully no sad news next week. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Steve. We're joined now by a man who appeared in season one and the very first episode on our return in season two. He's an Irish Open champion, a high stakes online crusher. And last year he came 71st, the last Irishman standing in the World Series of Poker main event. Today he will be taking us through probably the strangest hand he played on his way to that finish. He is, of course, Dan Nuke the Fish Wilson. Dan, welcome back to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, Dan. Dan, delighted to have you back. Obviously, it's been a little while. You appeared in season one and two, as I mentioned there. Any big results since then? Well, I've been going all right. Yeah, online's been going pretty well. Won the Bounty Builder 500 a few months ago. It was about 60-odd thousand, so that was a nice boost. And uh, Vegas went well, so I can't really complain. Had a deep run in the main, obviously, and won a Planet Hollywood side event as well for a decent chunk. Absolutely. Yeah, just before that Planet Hollywood side event, I remember, I think we were folding laundry in your apartment in Vegas. Uh, I think I was folding Darrow Carney's underpants or something at the time before bringing them back to him. And you mentioned how, what a brutal Vegas you've been having. But of course, you know, it, it's never over until it's over. Yeah, that's it. It can turn around. Can't it? Yeah, I've been very fortunate, actually, in Vegas over the years. I know, like, it's rare you have a winning year in Vegas, but somehow I've managed to win all four years I've gone it can't keep up really but like it, it's uh, down to a lot of run good but. that's pretty amazing I think my eighth Vegas was my first winning one <laughs> Uh, well, let's get into this hand. It is a completely wacky one. Uh, not the kind of hand I thought you would bring to us, but when I asked you, give us an interesting hand, you decided something a little outside the box, I want to say. Maybe you can take the lead on this one. 
All right, well, I'll set the stage for it anyway. So it's day four of the main event. We were in the money at the end of day three. So everyone's coming back, paid a min cash, and they're looking to spin up stacks now and just get moving, you know. So at a decent table, it was Poker Turo and another guy. Poker Turo is a pretty well-known Austrian reg. He was the only guy, along with one other French guy that I recognized. And in fact, the guy who came 10th, was on the table as well. The guy who had the kings against kings against aces, that French guy, he managed to survive against me in a cooler later just for like a tiny bit of chips that he ran back up. So this hand, I opened mid-position, make a 13k at 3-6 with 8-7 of hearts. And there was a youngish lady on the button who's been playing very aggro. She flats and we go heads up to the flop. The flop comes down 7-6-3 with one heart. And I see bet for about half pot, which is about 20k and 40 at this point. And just based on some hands I'd seen her play earlier, I expect her to be very sticky. She has these kind of, I want to win every pot tendencies, it seemed to me anyway, just from one or two hands. So I was expecting her to peel this bet pretty wide. So at this point, yeah, I suppose the first thing I would always ask myself is, given our opening range, this isn't the greatest board for us, although it happens to be a hand that we've connected. Dara, when when you're looking at a spot like this, would you ever check because maybe you would check your range on that texture or would you always see bet because, of course, you can have over pairs which are still very strong hands. You could have all the sets, of course. Maybe you can't have the nuts, but you can have nut-ish type hands. Yeah, this isn't the kind of board that I would auto-see bet, but I do think it's a board we have a fairly big range advantage on, nevertheless. We have a lot of hands that benefit from denying equity to our opponent, and we do have the stronger range. Yeah, Dan, when you make a decision to see bet this board, knowing particularly that this person is quite sticky, it probably immediately changes the dynamic because you might feel as though you have to bet this board and then be very sticky yourself, check-calling a lot of turns. Yeah, for sure. So the way I kind of picture this hand going down the streets is I'm going to bet this flop. And a lot of the time, I mean, it's very hard to get a turn card that I'm going to want to keep betting on. A lot of the time I'm going to be betting once here and then checking. But I feel like this is the kind of player that that kind of line is going to show up as weakness to a lot of the time. And it doesn't really matter what the turn card is. I'll probably be check calling anyway and then making decisions later. I feel like it's just a pot where the best line to give her the most rope is to bet once and then show weakness rather than to check now and then start going check call because versus check call, she might feel like she's being trapped whereas versus a bet and then a check down, a lot of people, especially there's certain types of players who will just see a white flag on the turn as just the hands over, it's mine now, you know? and they'll try their hardest to get it. So I feel like bet and then check later is probably a better strategy than check now and just check call all the way down. Also, yeah, like coming back to your point about you think that this player will actually call more than a normal player. Yeah. Like sometimes people think that's a reason not to bet in these spots, but actually to my mind, it's a reason to bet even more often with our value hands because sure. basically it's a pure value bet. And I think this is definitely the kind of player who, if she's sitting there with Queen Jack of Spades, say, with a backdoor flush draw two overs, there is no two over card hand, even a one over card hand with a good shot, anything like that, she'll call if she has backdoors. She's not going to fold on this board, would have been my impression. So I feel like betting will definitely extract value right now and allow her to have a lot of bluffs going forward on a lot of turn cards. Yeah, I have to say, I really like your overall strategy there. I like that idea that you're betting to then feign weakness on the turn, regardless of what it comes. Maybe it'll be a really scary one. You'll still have to check call and maybe put in a spot in the river. So the turn, I believe, comes the ace of spades. Yeah. Sticking to your plan, you 
check call a bet of 50k and you're feeling like okay she can definitely have some aces in her range so she definitely may have overtaken you here but at the same time you're just sticking to your guns here you feel like she was going to represent no matter what game yeah this obviously is one of the worst cards i'd imagine like a lot of her two overcard hands do just have an ace in them as well you know like obviously a jack might be a, a better card but then again if a jack peels off and she bets would she be more likely to check back ace highs and get the showdown with them? So maybe when an ace comes off, this is actually one of her best bluff cards because most of her hands don't really have showdown, even king high, queen high. They're not going to have showdown. So she just wants to bet all her bluffs now. Yeah, I agree. This is a pretty bad turn card for us because probably all of our ace highs play this way. She just calls the bet on the flop. Whereas I think a lot of our ace highs would check call the flop rather than bet themselves. So suddenly the range advantage switches in her direction. So therefore we do have to check. I think it's kind of close against somebody who's balanced whether we should even continue in the hand at this stage, given that there's very few good rivers for us. But again, somebody is floating much wider and bluffing a lot more than, yeah, obviously we we should continue and see what happens on the river. Yeah, that was my thinking too. There's even hands that she might have floated that we beat, like a pair that we're ahead of, like a pocket fives or pocket fours, something like that with a good shot that she might just be turning into a bluff as well. It's hard to know how many bluffs she can have, but I feel like she can have all of them. You know, whatever she could have floated, she might just bet now as well. And when you check all this turn, have you decided you're probably calling a blank river as well? Not necessarily. Like, I felt as well, like, this might come down to maybe trying to find a few tells later on. But as you said, that ace is one of the worst cards we could have got. So continuing here has to go with our plan but it doesn't necessarily mean we have to call off every river sure well the river comes the five of hearts she overbets 225k maybe not the <laughs> bet we were expecting here obviously a four makes a straight now eight nine is the nuts but we're in a bit of a bind here she's maybe more likely to have those kinds of hands and she's certainly trying to represent them or maybe over-represent them at some level. You know, this is the kind of bet that does seem to me very polarizing. And I'm not sure, given your line, you've represented that much strength that can call a bet this size. So it, it struck me immediately like a more normal size, maybe three quarters to 80% bet would have been like the better bluff slash value bet sizing from her. So this really big bet is very confusing. And I, I imagine you were confused because I know this elicited a, a long tank yeah, for sure, Dave. What you said there is very funny. It's exactly what went through my head at the time. I was looking at her cut out the bet, and she didn't take long to think about cutting it out, to be honest. She maybe spent 20, 30 seconds then. She had two big chunks of 5K chips in front, worth 100K each, and she stacked the chips she was riffling right on top of them. I don't think she even counted what she was riffling. She just stacked five more on top and then pushed it out. It made up 225, and at first I was thinking if she bet a normal size, she still has all the sets, and she still has all the 4x straights, and even two pairs, like she could have a lot of a6, a5, a4, all these kind of hands. But then when she overbets, it just felt like a lot of the hands that would have been in her range suddenly weren't anymore. And also, like you said, we represented like not that much strength, so it's not like a 225k bet is really necessary. Like if you were trying to extract value with middle set or something, would you be overbetting here, hoping to get called by what to her should look like a range of pocket pairs, probably between an ace and a seven. So yeah, it did feel quite fishy straight away, just in the sense that our range doesn't feel strong enough to call a bet like this. So she should be feeling like she's losing a lot of value here by betting so big versus what she might perceive our range to be. And granted now, if this was you know one of the top high stakes pros that you see play day in, day out, 
I would have given them credit here for having all those two pairs of sets in the range because an overbet here is a really good play when she's the only one who can have the nuts and I can't. Just for certain player types, I wouldn't think they have the same thought process and they might not think that they're getting called here as much for a bet this size. If my read was right and she would have called the flop with every queen jack, jack 10, queen 9, king jack, king 10, king 9, all of these overcards with uh, backdoor flush draws, if she calls all of them, she may well be over bluffing. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Like we looked at a hand recently, I played against Steve O'Dwyer in an online high roller and I folded trips on the river because I couldn't find very many natural bluffs for Steve in this spot. There are a lot of boards where there are just too many bluff candidates and I think this is definitely one of them. Like if she turned two spades, for example, as well, she has a fairly yeah. obvious river bluff. It's actually good that you don't have a spade as well. So you're not yeah. blocking her bluffs and you are blocking the nuts. So you definitely have a good candidate to call. And another thing that was going in my favor here was as we played the flop, the break was called. So players had left and, you know, we were into a 20 minute break. So I actually had time on the river and I didn't have anyone at the table to call a clock on me other than her. So I'm sitting there in the river and I'm kind of just looking at her. And the longer I look at her, the more nervous she seemed to be getting in that, like, she had this very composed posture, like a kind of a I'm running over the table kind of posture throughout the hands I'd seen previously. And she was. She had about 200 big blinds, a huge amount of chips. And even though she was sitting the same way now, what she'd been doing was more or less staring daggers through people. You know, it was like, you know, and, and every time I looked at her now, like I'd look back at my chips, I'd look at my cards, I'd look up to have a look at her. And all of a sudden she'd be staring at the light bulbs. Like it, it didn't make sense. Like at first I thought this is like a really bad acting job. You know, yeah, it, was, it seems like a reverse tell for sure. Like a reverse tell, but like it wasn't done casually. It was done with a stiffness. It didn't feel like a comfortable acting job, which I felt she could have pulled off. And I just got more and more suspicious by looking at her that something wasn't really right. In any case, I probably spent five minutes in the tank. We're already 10 minutes into the break now because the hands are tied out three streets. And the TD comes over to see what's going on because we're the last table in the room. And I said to him, well, at least there's no one here to clock me. So uh, I could take some time. He said, well, I'm going to have to clock you to clear the room. So So he threatened to clock me and I thought, well, okay, I I had like a minute or two. I had really kind of made up my mind at this point anyway that it's probably a call. And just based on our body language, I thought I'll probably just call. So I eventually flick in the call and (laughs) she she shakes her head. She kind of like mutters a bit and she, she says, nice call. I'm like, oh, thank God. I'm just waiting for her to turn over her hand. She won't turn it over. She just kind of wants to get up. And the TD's beside her as well. He's just like, just you have to show your hand to me, show his. And she eventually, after about 10 seconds, reluctantly shows over pocket 10s. No! <laughs> for the pocket pair turned into a bluff. And at some point in the hand on the river, I had said to her, I have an eight. And she says to me, I thought you said you had an ace. <laughs> Wow. And all of her nervousness had arose because she thought, well, he's obviously got me beat and his plan to call me worse. Well, Dara, the way Dan has sort of framed it there, I guess he ultimately let a physical read make the final decision. That turn was one of the worst turns. Maybe it was the kind of turn where you stick by your guns and you do your check on the turn, but you fold to a lot of bets on the river and obviously this was a chunky bet. Now, it was a suspiciously chunky bet and her behaviour certainly got very shifty, maybe induced falsely by a, a mishearing of 
him declaring part of his hand. But when you're in those spots, Dara, and, and you sort of have the time to think about it, like you're at a table, you don't feel anyone's going to clock. It's not a turbo. But what kind of stuff are you looking for? And do you feel like Dan maybe did the right thing, but it unfortunately backfired? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those classic spots where your opponent is bluffing, but you can't even beat their bluff. Dan's really spot on, obviously. She's obviously over bluffing when she puts a hand like this into her bluff range because, you know, it has good showdown and it generally won't fold out better hands. But it's an interesting spot because even though she is bluffing at the end, like, I don't think it's a horrible bluff because... I guess she feels that Dan has capped his range to a certain degree, but she just has so many bluff candidates here. I think she'd be better off choosing a hand that has less showdown and maybe blocks the nuts. So has an eight or a nine in, in it itself. Also, she has a very narrow value range here. I mean, I guess she could have like something like pocket threes, maybe pocket fours, which hit the gut shot on the river. But it's very difficult to find too many strong hands that she would play this way or that the size on the river, as Dan said. And given how many bluff candidates she has, you know, all the miss spades, all the eight X, all the nine X, if she's extending her range out to include hands like tens then she's definitely way over bluffing now that said this probably works for her in the long term because you know the old stereotype that women don't bluff maybe she does get people to fold asx there but it's a case where dan's read was right but unfortunately she still had the best hand yeah well i'm delighted that you dan obviously haven't had a big 40% of your stack ripped off you in this spot. We're able to recover and make that deep run. I am reminded by that phrase. I can't remember which poker player told it to me years ago where he said it was the right operation, but the patient died. It feels a little <laughs> bit like that one. That about sums it up all right, yeah. Well, listen, Dan, thank you so much for bringing us this hand. It was a great one from your World Series run and congratulations again on that. No worries, guys. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dan. We're joined now by a WSOP bracelet winner, a man who has accumulated over 17 million in live winnings with 15 live wins, 11 of which were in high rollers or super high rollers, including three Aria high rollers, a Poker Masters 50k title, a Monte Carlo 100k, a PCA 50k and a PCA 100k. He is, of course, Bryn Kenny. Bryn, welcome to the show. Uh, Hey, guys. Nice to be on here. Thanks for having me. Hi, Bryn. We're delighted to have you. I want to kick off here. In an interview with Poker News last year, you described yourself as a lone wolf in this poker world. I love that quote. What exactly did you mean by that? I mean, like, uh, all these poker players, they all hang out with each other. They talk poker in Skype groups and WhatsApp chats. And at the end of the day, all go to dinner together, discuss hands, discuss reads on everybody else. Thing is, I just don't do that at all. I just do it all by myself. So that's what I meant, like, by being a lone wolf. Like, everybody else is kind of sharing information. Like, I'm here myself fighting against them all. If it's okay, I want to go back to the start of your career. I know you moved into poker having been a top Magic player, which wasn't an uncommon route for players 10 or 15 years ago. I think I'm right in saying your mother wasn't impressed by your life choice to pursue poker initially online. How did she express that? And is she okay with it now? Well, like my mom and high school girlfriend, they were both trying to take me to Gamblers Anonymous. You know, they've got people at church telling them like, oh, it's immoral, like taking money from people, like it's not the right way to do things. So my mom just had some people in her ear, I guess, and she was always easily affected. But my dad kind of always told her, yeah, you'd rather him be on the computer playing cards than out doing what most like 17 year old kids are out doing. So my dad was always cool with it. My mom, like, she became cool with it as soon as I started winning big amounts and started taking her and my family on vacations. Well, that's good to hear. I'm I'm glad things change. I I certainly could 
share a story like that about my own family. I think it, it was hard at the start for sure. You have what could be described as an eidetic or photographic memory. They say Stu Unger had that, and I think Chris Mormon might have it too. Can you tell us how that has been an advantage in poker, but also perhaps maybe a disadvantage as a human being in the sense that, I don't know, forgetting is a really important human trait, maybe allowing you to move on from things? Yeah, well, the one good thing that I've always been about is never being hard on myself for things that I can't control. So if I play well and do the best I can, I'm never really going to be upset or hard on myself. And that's kind of the way that I train myself to be. Otherwise, you kind of just go crazy playing poker anyway. But uh, the photographic memory, the way it helps me the most is because everybody else, the way that they learned playing poker online was using software to tell them numbers and stuff. But I never used any of that software. So what I did was is I have a database of millions of hands that I actually use my brain to think about each single one. So I've been in a lot more situations that I've used my mind to think about than other people have where they're just using HUDs for help and such. So I feel like in live tournaments, that just helps me a lot because I remember all these hands, a lot more situations that I may have thought of that other people haven't thought of. And I pretty much just dedicated my whole life up until now to playing poker. That's like all I did all day, every day was play cards or think about cards and try to improve. For like a life balance, it's horrible because (laughs) I wouldn't do anything else for years and years. So to become like great at anything, I think you have to sacrifice a lot of things. And for most people, probably it's just not worth it. But a lot of times you can also be involved in something and not even realize like you think you have such control over your situations. And then when you look back to it a bit later, you realize that you had no control over anything. But the photographic memory of mine, I would say there's no negative to it for me, except with food. See, I have a sickness for food because... If I think about something, I can taste it because of the memory. So food is really like my number one (laughs) in the world. Yeah, that's very interesting. Dave mentioned at the top a very long list of impressive high-stakes results. Which of those results, if any, stands out as a particularly big moment for you in your career? Uh, Come on, Bryn, you can't have forgotten. We know that. (laughs) No, but there's no big moment in the career. It's just like... I've always just been in it and I've won to either keep myself afloat or get myself out of like a bad spot. Yeah, I don't know, because before I ever won my first big live high roller tournament, I had already won a lot of money playing cash games live online. So it wasn't really something so special because in a high roller tournament, you usually have less percent than other things. So actually, most of my career, I had 100% of a lot of my tournaments and ran pretty bad. So all my big wins are having maybe 20 to 50% or so maximum. So, I mean, I never even equate money either. So it's just like you win and then it's over and you play again. Go have a nice meal, day's over. Got a little bit more shells to fire. <laughs> well, you mentioned there how maybe... Some of these wins have gotten you out of a hole. In the past, your approach to bankroll management has been aggressive, to say the least. I know you've gone from having a huge bankroll to six months later, maybe being close to broke or maybe broke. I'm also reminded of a quote where you said once that in the pursuit of winning the game, you sometimes light ICM on fire. Is that overall approach to risk taking still a feature of your game or have you become maybe more conservative with age? I mean, I definitely become more conservative about like bankroll management on the side of the game. But I think in poker, the most important thing is to be feared by the other players. So if you're not really feared, then they're just going to play you comfortably all the time. So by doing 
things like that, by doing crazy moves, it makes people afraid to play big pots against you because they know that you don't really care that you'll just put all your chips in if you think it's the right move at the end of a tournament. And that makes you just very dangerous for everyone else to mess with. <laughs> sort of ICM chicken. Yeah, exactly. So, like, are you ready to play right here for all the chips? That's the thing. Most of the time, that's the right strategy. If people are there trying to ladder up, you want to play more aggressive then because they're going to be playing more cautious. For sure. In 2017, you cashed for eight and a half million, more than anyone else in live poker. And you spent most of that year on top of the GPI leaderboard. However, down the home straight with two weeks to go, Adrian Matthias got his nose in front and ultimately pipped you for the title. Was that something you were consciously chasing or cared about? Like, that was a little bit annoying. It would have been nice <laughs> to win it, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I guess so whatever way the point structure is set up, because all my wins were in smaller field tournaments, I think I, I won maybe double what he did in the year and still lost him somehow. Yeah, that sounds like a rigged system, doesn't it? Yeah. It doesn't seem right. Uh, especially, like, there was one $2 million win in Monte Carlo out of the 8.5. But other than that, there was, like, one for a million. And then there was just so many for 300 and 500. It was really just consistent wins all throughout the year. So, I mean, in my mind, I don't see how I really didn't win player of the year. If you look at my sheet of tournaments compared to anyone else, I don't think it's reasonable, to be honest, to say that I didn't win. But at the same time, it doesn't really bother me at all. Yeah, it really was an astonishing year. I suppose Bonomo has done something similar this year, but like those kind of years are just extraordinary. Congrats on that. I met you once or twice over the years, but the first time we spoke properly, I remember, was when we were both being conscientious backers. Uh, you were on the Kevin McPhee rail at EPT London, and Darren and I were on the Kevin Killeen rail when the lads were three-handed. How much have you enjoyed staking players over the years? Oh, no, that's been like the bane of my existence. <laughs> That's been the worst. Is Kevin McPhee specifically, or? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I, just like more stress, more of like a headache, people putting their problems on you, let alone you're the one who's just swinging all the money up and down. And then in the end of the day, the people don't really even care. Like if they're losing huge amounts for you or what you did for them, people just kind of get selfish. I was just too nice to people. I never really took staking like a business. I was just doing really well, so I started staking like friends and then more friends of friends and just got out of hand. Well, you've always been something of an ambassador in poker in terms of advising sites and tours and good practices and what the players want. Why did you take on this mantle? Uh, I don't know. I just I guess I'm the one who has a louder voice because a lot of the high roller players, they'll maybe have an opinion, but they'll be too one side, too brash or too quiet. I feel like I'm a good median where I'm friends with all the pros and all the businessmen. I've Like, poker has been my life. I've staked people, played all day, every day. So really everything about poker, like I know about it, about every series that's ran online, about every live tournament, what people like, what people don't like. And I just think I have the best view because I've been in this world more than anybody else. With that in mind, Bryn, what do you think people want right now at this current moment in the game that maybe they're not getting? To be honest, it's mostly like what are people actually getting right now would be the better question because I feel like it's just more cut down and cut down more and more for everything where maybe players aren't really even getting anything right now. 
Well, I guess all you could ask for is having the right tournaments that you would want to play now, either in live or online, or even just listening at all. To be honest, I feel like poker stars just for years just didn't really listen to what anyone was saying at all. They could have done all these things online and probably made it so that party poker wouldn't even have existed and just continued with their monopoly. But they were just so lazy about even knowing about what's going on and what people wanted, about not adding higher stakes tournaments. Now they've added a few of these, but it's so late it's like everybody's sleeping at the job i don't know but you know that's what happens sometimes it happened to one of my friends companies also when like venture capital guys they come in and buy the company they all think that they're smarter than everybody else they get rid of all the people who actually know how to operate the business and just kind of like run it into the ground not saying that poker stars has ran it into the ground i have no idea about their numbers but i know at least in a player approval standpoint they went from being the absolute best by far to where people play on there because it's the best product but don't really trust a single thing that they say understand where you're coming from there a subject you've spoken a bit on over the years and, and actually you alluded to it just a moment ago there is maybe your health and your weight you've said how as a kid your weakness maybe was fast food and in adulthood your weight has gone up and down is there a strong connection between your weight and your contentment with how well you're doing in poker or is it maybe the opposite where the times you're in full focus in poker mode it's hard to maintain healthier habits in life yeah, I would say it's mostly just traveling around a lot and staying in hotels and playing all day every day and not really having great options and just it being easiest pretty much everywhere you are in the world just to eat some shitty food than it is to eat some good food. I mean, if I had the options where I could eat good food or shitty food all the time, I'd never be eating the shitty food. But the thing is, you just don't really have options. You fly to a place to play poker tournament and that's kind of what you have. Yeah, that's definitely something I could relate to. It's very hard to keep the weight off when you're traveling. It's a question of the food you're eating, but also even stuff like the times you eat. Like there tends to be a lot of late night eating, which is kind of the worst type of eating. But to turn back to poker, I think it's fair to say you don't describe yourself as a GTO player. And you kind of alluded to that earlier in the way you learn poker. Some of the other high rollers, Charlie Carroll, for example, think it's dangerous to actually think about the game in that way. What are your views on the whole GTO movement? I think that it's definitely a winning strategy, but I don't think that you could be the best at something just by studying a way that you're supposed to be because the best moves that you could make are based on the person that you're playing against. So nothing can ever really be solved in a nutshell because nothing is like in a nutshell. Everyone plays different and maybe one guy bets a certain amount on the river with a certain range and another guy just never bluffs it at all. So there, if you're playing GTO, you're just lighting your money on fire sometimes and then you're like trying to balance things that don't need to be balanced. So yeah, it's uh, dangerous, I would say, for like everything. If you want to say that you don't play GTO at all, that's dangerous. And if you want to say that you play completely GTO... That's dangerous too. I mean, me saying that I don't play GTO at all would be an understatement because I'm playing poker with these guys all day, every day who are studying the whatever and I see the plays that they make. So even if I'm playing my own style, I'm picking up some of these moves that I'm seeing that I like to incorporate into my own game. So it's always like constant learning. Even if I don't completely agree with something, it doesn't mean that I don't understand exactly what they're thinking. And you mentioned there the sort of moves that you're seeing from these guys. Is there anything you've picked up on in the high roller scene over maybe the last six months? Something, I don't know, a little nugget 
Uh, the stakes are too high to be talking about strategy. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, David. The stakes are like 10 million a year now or so. <laughs> fair play, fair play. Well, look, watching the recent Super High Roller Bowl and, and other TV high stakes games, it seems more than ever in a way that the conversation about top pros, especially on poker Twitter, becomes this GTO versus exploitative polemic. Do you think there's any way to get away from this debate in the way that poker is covered? Everybody's so results oriented about things. So whoever's playing good on whatever stream that they see, they're always saying that this guy's playing the best no matter what. But I mean, really, the people who know who's playing the best are the people who play with the guys every day because only a very small percentage of hands are on the stream. And to be honest, I would say there's a very good merit that the best poker player in the world, most people don't even think that they are the best poker player in the world. Because to be the best poker player in the world, it means that people don't understand the way that you're thinking and aren't catching a lot of these bluffs that maybe you're making and they may have just no clue because the percent that you're getting them through is so high but that's an interesting point as the game evolves further over the next few years are there any players you think we will see starting to suddenly excel and on the other side are there any that are going well at the moment that you think might fall by the wayside i mean it's like a lot about like confidence of what you're doing on the side also it's really hard to judge something like that because it's about what someone's putting into the game. If you're putting in everything into the game, you'll probably stay at the top of it if you're being smart, making smart life decisions. But then it's also there's such a thin line to everything crumbling and just everything goes well. And now you start partying, maybe think that you're at the top and you don't need to do anything. And you can be nonchalant and just do things however you want it. And those are the times when the players get knocked down from the top or where they think they're at the top. With that in mind, is there anyone who you feel their poker brain is that good, but maybe, I don't know, partying or that kind of lifestyle choice has hurt them significantly? Someone you think could just come out of nowhere now, or maybe if they just straighten themselves out, they could be one of the top players? Yeah, there's a lot of people like this because there's so many vices in poker that really can keep you down of gambling, girls, drinking, drugs. So I, I don't want to call anyone out because, I mean, I don't want to say that people are making shitty life decisions, but their decisions are their own. Like maybe this isn't what they want and they'd rather be like that and just get through how they're getting through and not really excel. Because remember, it's like a whole balance or no balance thing. Like if you want to be the best, like you have no balance. You can be successful, not really be the best and have like a better life than people who are like the best and not doing anything except for it and not really even breathing the air around them. We've talked a bit about the whole uh, GTO versus exploitative debate. Another debate that tends to rage through live poker is around the whole area of live poker reads and tells. You know, some players place absolutely no importance on them and other players think they're quite important. In terms of your own career, do you think the ability to read other people has been a factor or is it just how good you are technically? Well, yeah, definitely being able to read people. Just a lot of things of how quick they bet, how much they bet, how they look when they're doing it, feeling like if they're confident or not. But then at the same time, I feel like a lot of these guys who are talking so much about how good they are at live reads. I think that's more bullshit. Like if you're so good at live reads, you would keep it to yourself. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think there can be a lot of results-based stuff as well. Like sometimes, you know, a player will make a hero call, which turns out to be correct, and then they can justify it on the basis of a live read. But, you know, it's almost confirmation bias then. Yeah, exactly. And you saw them make like the incorrect play six times in a row, but now they're such a genius because they made this one like live read correct. That's why everyone's like so results-oriented. You forget about everything else that happened. 
oh, this one thing, oh my god, the guy is so good, what a live reader. <laughs> uh, looking into the future, Bryn, do you feel like you can continue the work ethic you've shown up to this point? Do you still have that sort of passion and drive for the game? Obviously, 2018 may be disappointing compared to what you did in 2017 with 8.5 million and finishing two in the GPI this year. I think currently maybe you're at 81, still right up there at the top. And I know the difference between maybe some of those top positions is really how well you run in the last few flips of a tournament. But is the passion still there? Do you feel like 2019 is going to be a big year? I mean, like, I love the game for sure, and I'll always love to play poker and love to play high stakes. To be honest, I'm more focused now on just being healthy and being in a good mindset for when I do play. Before, it was like you were practicing a lot online, and the games online and live were very similar, but now I feel like the games live and online are completely different. Online practice isn't really necessary at all for live, except maybe like a few like rare type of games. So uh, I feel like I don't have to play all the time anymore. Definitely I'm done with all in for poke. I don't think it's healthy anyway. In 2017, when I won everything anyway, I wasn't going to every tournament. It worked for that year. It didn't work for this year. I mean, to be honest, this year anyway, it's a lot of just huge buy-ins and high variance. So when you're playing like two tournaments that you could lose a million dollars in each one and wind up losing three million and change in the year, it's kind of a small amount compared to the stakes when it's 100K and 300K re-entry. Sure. Yeah, for sure. It seems a lot of players who reach the top, like you have, when they're on the way up, they're obviously fully committed to poker and they're focused on getting better and getting to the top level. But once they get there, then it's almost like they've completed the game in some sense, or they start thinking about what they're going to do next or what their exit strategy would be. I mean, do you think you're going to be around poker for a long time or are you already thinking about what you're going to move on to? No, I think like I'll always play poker. I mean, even now, even with me not playing poker all the time, I'm on 24-7. I've been helping GG Network with tournaments. I've added tons of 5K tournaments that we're running every week. So I still am always going to do a lot of things for poker because that's what I know about. Fair play. Well, before we let you go, I want to ask you one final question. We, We mentioned Stu Unger there earlier. And I wonder, from your position in the upper echelons of the game, a game that has no doubt got tougher with each passing year. How hard or maybe how easy is it to look at the achievements of the game's past great players in a positive light? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to like compare the two, but like Stu Unger has to go down anyway as the biggest legend of the game. Winning back-to-back main events and being the best gin player in the world and everyone saying having the best like photographic memory. I mean, in my mind, he goes down as the best player of all time. And is there anybody on the flip of that that you can look at great achievements, but then through the lens of the modern day, maybe they don't seem quite as good? But that's really like most people. <laughs> like who's at the top right now who was at the top 10, 20 years ago? And the answer is like nobody. Yeah, the game has moved on an awful lot. Well, Bryn, it has been terrific having you on the show. And a real treat, I know, for our listeners to get a glimpse into the mind of somebody who plays the absolute nosebleeds. Thank you so much and the best of luck for 2019. Nice talking to you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Bryn. Playing us out this week is a song recommended to me by this week's guest, Aliyah Jadavji. If you've seen our promos this week, you'll already know she's got a thing for pandas. Released in December 2015, this is the debut single by rapper Designer. This is Panda. Yeah. 
feel myself. I got bribes in the land. She's a dolly in the family. Credit cards in the scammers. Hitting the licks in the band. Legacies, family. Wayne C, look like a panda. Going out like a Montana. Honey killers on the helmets. Legacies, family. Wayne C, family. Pockets full, Danny. Selling ball, candy. Man, I the macho like Randy. The chopper go out to for granted. This nigga bullet your bandit. Killers understand me. I got broads in Atlanta. Twisted to D in the family. Credit cards in the scammers. Hitting the leaks in the van. Legacy, family. Way is it? Look like a family. Going out like a Montana. Honey killers on the hammers. Legacy, family. Way is it? Packets full, Danny. Salad bowl, candy. Man, I the macho like Randy. The chopper go out to for granted. This nigga pull out your family. I get broads in Atlanta, chasing the leanest shit, sipping fun. Credit cards in the scammers, wake up beside your shit, let it sound. Hope it's a lot of shit, they be at the rent, I know we clap shit. I be pulling myself in the final shit. I got plenty of stuff with Bugatti, but look how I try this shit. Black and six, final. Why is he killing no comma? Pop a perk, I got Sonic, Gorilla, they come and kill you with bananas. For feelings, I feel it, pull up in the final. No niggas, they come and kill you on the comma. Pony is dancing bigger than the pound, go out to the Grammy, but pull up your pound and fuck up, I'm a flip it. I got bitches pull up and they get it. I got niggas that's counting for digits. Say you make you a lot of no money. Those no killers pull up in the end of baby. CTDD pull up in the killer baby. Call a filler, fill up, gon' fill it, baby. Niggas up in the baby, gon' drill it, baby. Fuck, we gon' kill it, baby. Get it. I got broad, yeah, I get it. I got cards, yeah, shit it. It's how I live. Did it all for a ticket. I play the bombs when he's spinning the Bobby gon' spin it. Chop the dawn, doing business in the break. Fucking up shit, she doing the minute. I begin to the chicken, count to the chicken, and all of my niggas are spinning. I got broads in Atlanta, just a dolly in the family Credit cards in the scammers, hitting the licks in the band Legacies, family, way and see, look like a panda Going out like a Montana, honey killers on the helmets Legacies, family, way and see, panda Packets full, Danny, selling ball, candy Man, I the macho like Randy, the chopper go out to for Grammy This nigga pull up your bandit, hope killers understand me I got broads in Atlanta, twisted to D in the family Credit cards in the scammers, hitting the licks in the van Legacy, family, way is it, look like a panda Going out like a Montana, honey killers on the hands Legacy, family, way is it, panda Packets full, Danny, selling ball, candy Man, I the macho like Randy, the chopper go out to for Grammy This nigga pull up your banner, hope the killers understand me Thanks again to Aliyah, Dan and Bryn. Next week we've got yet another legend of the game. Elia Lezer will be with us to discuss, amongst other things, his book Pulling the Trigger, which has just been translated into English by friend of the show Robbie Straczynski. We'll also be joined by up-and-coming poker commentator Henry Kilban. Until then, from Dara, Ian and myself, good night and good luck. 